Support for Father David Abernethy and his ministry at the Pittsburgh Oratory of St. Philip Neri comes entirely from the donations of community members and listeners like you. The creation of future groups and podcast episodes depends on your commitment and generosity. We humbly ask that you consider a monthly gift of $10 to the Pittsburgh Oratory in support of Father David and his work. To make this or any gift, please visit www.thepittsburghoratory.org, click the Donate button, and write Father David in the notes section. You can also make a recurring or one-time donation directly through Podbean. Your commitment and ministry-sustaining support are greatly appreciated. God bless you, and enjoy the podcast. in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Okay, welcome back everybody to our study of the Abracadinos and uh, I apologize uh, for last week. Uh, I was struggling with a little bit of the flu that I had thought had passed, but five minutes before the group, I was undone <laughs> by dinner. So uh, uh, fortunately it didn't last too long and I'm glad to be back back at it and hopefully we didn't lose track of what we're looking at. We're on, we're in hypothesis 18 still just at the very end of it and today we're picking up on page 140 if you have the text with uh abba isaac uh, addressing in particular what we've been talking about these past few weeks about the value of spending time with virtuous people and those who can guide us in the spiritual life uh, especially by the way that they live even more so than their teaching that those who have an experiential knowledge of the ascetical life and its struggles, its pitfalls, and who can be true guides to us. And, uh, and this is emphasized by Abba Isaac here in this last little section. And we'll be moving into uh, hypothesis 19 on obedience, uh, where he becomes a little bit more specific, uh, or the authors become a little bit more specific about uh, the key virtue here for us in terms of uh, allowing ourselves to be guided by the will of another, and in this imitating Christ in particular. And so that's what we'll be looking at in 19. And so again, letter G, Abba Isaac. Do not ask to receive advice from someone who does not have experience with the type of life you live, even if that person is very wise. It is preferable to entrust your problems to an individual who has experience in such matters than to a philosopher who speaks with logic based on a theoretical examination of matters without, however, having the experience of them. For the experience do not enter into the nature of things and examine various aspects of an issue without yet having received knowledge from direct dealings with it. An experienced person feels directly the benefit and the harm of things, having spent a lot of time involved in them. Indeed, in many cases, something may seem to be damaging, but may have a great benefit hidden inside. And conversely, other times something may externally seem full of benefits, and yet may be totally harmful internally. 
For this reason, many people have been harmed a great deal by the things which only appear to be of profit. Thus, you should use as an advisor him who from experience knows well the nature and strengths of various things and who is in a good position to discern without erring their benefit or harm. One who has successfully come to control the spirit of independence in himself is the most worthy of trust in prudently imparting such control to others. So Abba Isaac, Isaac this, uh, I'm, I don't know if it's Isaac the Syrian or not. I don't, I don't quite think so because I think it might be a little bit earlier than Isaac the Syrian. And, uh, but I'll have to check on that. But he certainly writes like uh, Isaac the Syrian in terms of the beauty and clarity of it. Uh, but captures so clearly and precisely the importance of uh, seeking out someone who has the experiential knowledge. The things aren't often what they seem on the surface. And that's true, uh, especially within the spiritual life, that things can seem uh, beneficial to us or seem pleasing or give the experience on an emotional level of, of being pleasing or of a kind of intimacy with God. And yet can be turn out to be internally harmful to us. Perhaps they produce uh, pride within within the soul. And so having an experienced guide who isn't thinking simply about things on a theoretical level, level, thinking about them in an abstract way, not that that's problematic in the sense of unpacking things and then describing them, but one would first want to have the experiential knowledge to know what is uh, beneficial, what is harmful. Uh, before laying it out for another. Otherwise, it is simply theoretical knowledge that we, a person really wouldn't know whether something is truly helpful or harmful without having struggled with it himself or herself. And uh, this will come up again and again. And that's why we see obedience in the next hypothesis being valued so much that uh, in, in one sense, almost above the other virtues uh, or giving rise to them in some way that in, in obedience and giving our will over to another, one conforms oneself to the crucified one who did the will of the father, even unto death. And so the authors will say that these individuals become confessors of the faith in the truest sense of the word that they can bear witness uh, to the truth of the cross, to the, the value of obedience, the redeeming quality of that obedient love uh, more than any other. And so this is what the authors are preparing us for here in the coming hypothesis. Uh, the other interesting thing here is that he talks specifically about the great harm that can be caused and has often been caused uh, by receiving the guidance of, of one who has no real knowledge of the spiritual life, uh, that um, one can be very well read and know, know the fathers and know the great spiritual writers. And yet, because they lack that experiential knowledge, not having the kind of refined discernment that is necessary, that allows them to be unerring in their guidance of another, that it's one thing to know it within one's mind, it's another thing to really to perceive it in and through the eyes of faith, but also faith that has been shaped and formed by this uh, obedient experience or obedient response to God in one's life. And uh, we often fall into the, this, you know, certainly there is a place for a, th a theoretical description of things, more philosophical approach to things. 
but in the spiritual battle, you know, that the, the emphasis is on experience. So these writings aren't uh, theoretical, they're not uh, theolog theology books, they're practical and pastoral guidance uh, for us. And so sh we shouldn't try to make them what they aren't. There are go going to be some ways that they're not going to explain things perhaps in the way that we would like in, in a systematic way, for example. This is as close as you get to systematic in the writings of the fathers, the Evergatinos, where things are put under a specific hypothesis. But that's about as close as we're going to get. And maybe John Climacus would be uh, the one who gives us the clearest uh, outline of things. But typically, they aren't overly systematic. They're not so much interested in giving us rules or laying things out very specifically for us, but rather calling us to enter into this striving for God in the life of holiness. Okay. Any comments about this final little section in Hypothesis 18? Okay. All right. Uh, maybe just one little last section there. The very last sentence. One who has successfully come to control the spirit of independence in himself is most worthy of trust and prudently imparting this control to others. And I think we could look at this in a number of ways. The control of the passions or the control of one's desires, one who's successfully overcome this uh, kind of false independence within us to do what we want, to follow our feelings and our desires where we please, and have brought those into submission, if you will. But also uh, more specifically about the will that uh, one has been able to overcome this spirit of independence within himself, that uh, he knows that he is walking blindly uh, without the counsel of another, and so doesn't cling to it and has learned not to cling to it over the course of time. Climacus, you'll find, gives in his section on obedience perhaps the, the best descriptions of this, the best little stories of it, and he even talks about sort of making fun of one of the elderly monks in the monastery uh, who was, you know, humbled uh, by the abbot when he was there, and he sort of nudged him, I guess, while he was walking by and asked him how he came to endure this, and he thought at first he was, you know, being punished for his sins, that he had been, you know, had basically been thrown into a kind of prison, and then over the course of time, he began to see a kind of freedom that came from it. And then eventually he came to, to love the position that he was given, which was someone who was like the porter responsible for the door of the monastery, uh, but uh, was, was able to experience a deep kind of internal freedom in the sense of being moved to anger or feeling despair, that he was able to see through these things uh, in ways that we often aren't. You know, we, it doesn't take much to throw us into sadness or anger or frustration. And uh, so this is what we'll be looking at next here. Okay. Oh, a few hands went up there. Uh, John Breslin and then Rachel. Good evening, Father. Good evening. I was thinking, I, I'm, a, I'm not violating anything by saying I'm a member of uh, Alcohol Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and one of the things that's so compelling about the AA experience is is something that's directly related to what we just read. When you 
when you go into, into AA, you see all these other people who learned how to control their passion for drinking alcohol, basically, to control their independence, as the writing says. And what works about that is when you go in, you see all these other people who did that, who learned by that obedience and that ability to control this out-of-control passion. It gives the newcomer faith that they can do that, too, because they see the experience that these you know, elders had in that case or something. Conversely, it's something that's often been challenging for me in the religious life is to find people like that, that you can look to, you know, like these, these monks on Mount Athos or, or whatever, or the, the, the desert fathers, they all had people that, that were their, their counselors, their advisor, their confessor or whatever. And for a lot of us, myself included, it's challenging in the church to find people like that, that I can base my, my faith on, you know, because I don't really know their spiritual journey is similar to mine in the same way that I know an alcoholic went through what I went through with his alcohol. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the things that's so great about you doing this, you know, it just, it gives us an ability to, to, to learn from somebody and talk to somebody with more experience in, in this type of stuff, this kind of hard hitting stuff from the desert fathers that talks directly about living the virtuous life and overcoming the passions and things like that. Yeah, in many ways, I think we, we live in a blessed time that precisely when perhaps we don't have many elders to guide us along this path or to, to lay these things out before us that we have greater access to the fathers and can sit at their feet and do this over the course of one's lifetime uh, and to, to seek their guidance and counsel. And, uh, you know, the God doesn't abandon us, certainly, uh, in, in the lack that exists in our own day or just the inconsistency, I think, that, that often exists there as well. And it can be deeply frustrating. Where, where does one turn in the spiritual life to find this kind of, of counsel? And, uh, uh, and so... I think we've, I've mentioned it in past groups that in so many ways that we can't expect it to be handed to us in our day, that we really do have to be willing to enter into the labor of seeking not only to, to read the fathers and understand them, but to, to put what they discuss into practice and to continue to search, I think, for a good confessor at least, where we can lay before him our thoughts and what we are experiencing so that we do have a sounding board, someone to help us reflect upon our own experience, that we aren't simply or and willfully following our own, own desires. And, uh, you know, even when we seem to know something very well or the clarity of it seems great to us, there can be subtle things that we aren't seeing or the, that we have blind spots and hard spots that can be ever so subtle, but yet they can be key and often make us walk down the wrong path altogether. Um, it's interesting, today I was reading a little passage from, uh, it's not going to copy over to me, uh, over uh, to the chat set section, but uh, 
St. John Chrysostom has a beautiful writing on the relationship between husband and wife and the obedience that exists between the spouses and that they show to each other and how formative that is, that in this back and forth response of their setting aside their own will in order to support, strengthen, and to love the other, that they reach a level of perfection that rivals that of the monks. And, uh, and so, you know, I think living in certain relationships with this kind of spirit of obedience that is put forward here before us, where we aren't clinging uh, to our own desires and passions, and when we aren't clinging to our own will, but are able to engage the other with freedom, with love, this willingness to lay down ourselves for the sake of the other. And, uh, but we do need counsel in order to be able to, to get there, because I think everything in our culture tells us the moment that we come up against something or someone in our life who seems to be an obstacle, a threat to our happiness, uh, that we want to free ourselves from that reality as quickly as we can. Whereas in most of the spiritual writings, we hear that these individuals for us are typically our guides in the spiritual life, or they are our path to sanctity, as difficult uh, as it can be to, to believe that. And, uh, and so if you have a chance, I'd go back and, and read Chrysostom. I wish I could copy it over here, if somebody can find it, it's pretty easy to find online. I just can't seem to figure out how to get a copy into the chat. Uh, but it's a, a very good read, especially for those who are married. Okay. And Rachel, did you have a, you had your hand up. Hi, I did. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, I, I was driving, so I have to pull over. Um, <laughs> you, you mentioned, <laughs> I don't want to miss the class, so I, I turn no, it on while I'm driving. I'm glad. Um, you, you mentioned that everybody does need a guide, and, and I've heard the, quite the opposite, actually, that hardly anybody needs spiritual direction. Mm -hmm. And I think that you just made a really, a very good distinction mm -hmm. where, and and I thought to myself when, when hearing that a few times, well, everybody needs spiritual direction, but just not as much as they probably think they do. And um, also, I read today a quote from an Eastern saint, uh, how, I guess I'll just paraphrase it, if you know, one's looking for a guide, how awful it is to be searching for healing and to actually find yourself put in harm's way because of a haste and perhaps um, a lack of discernment, a lack of you know, waiting on God and trusting in him, but also the inexperience of the guide. And so not to rush into you know, uh, finding a guide and trying to find somebody to guide your soul, but, you know, realizing that our souls are precious, just like everyone else's and to pray and do the work, just as you were saying, and, and trust that God will guide you and find a good confessor to stay with that confessor and to, to just trust in God. All, all of the points that you had were, are really good. Yeah. Yeah, I agree, you know, that there can be irreparable harm that's done. And so typically, and we'll see in the fathers too, this counsel 
to spend a long time searching uh, for someone. Uh, but once you find someone, you stay with them. The one doesn't sort of bounce around from one spiritual director to another until you find someone who tells you what you want to hear. And I think also there are at times people who are seeking spiritual counsel more than they are spiritual direction, like counsel about a certain set of circumstances, a situation, about how to manage it or deal with it, and not necessarily seeking a relationship over the course of time. And, uh, and so sometimes things are called spiritual direction uh, that aren't, or they're seeking out uh, pastoral counseling or a kind of psychological counseling too, not necessarily in a conscious way, but I think a lot of times people will approach priests uh, because there can be a little, there can be, uh, I think it's an understatement, a little bit of a resistant resistance to addressing maybe some of the deeper wounds that one might bear because of life traumas that one has experienced. And at times priests will uh, seem very safe or there's, there isn't the same stigma that there still exists at times uh, about seeing a therapist. Like a lot of people are often hesitant to see a therapist, worried about something showing up on their records or, or just feeling embarrassed about it. And so often they will seek out a priest uh, looking for you know, this kind of understanding uh, or this kind of healing that maybe needs to be done in another forum. Uh, and so, you know, a priest has to be discerning to see what, what a person really needs, you know, that uh, it's sort of like the difference between a, G, a general practitioner and a surgeon. You know, sometimes the general practitioner is good, but when a person needs a surgeon, you want to send them to a, a surgeon. And uh, a priest has to be discerning in terms of what's really going to be helpful for that person at a particular time in their life. Wayne. Yeah, good evening, Father. The, you were talking, mentioning about uh, the thing about uh, John Christartum. Was that from Royal Doors that you read that? Uh, I don't know where I got it. I just looked it up. I had read it a bunch of times uh, in the past. And so I just came across it again. Let me see if I can get it to come up this time. Yeah, because I, I get you're probably familiar with Royal Doors, and I get that right. every day. And, and there is a mention there, but when you're going to take a wife, do not look for a companion in life, but also a companion in virtue. So I don't know if that's the same one that you were thinking of or not. Yeah, it must be something with Mac, because I tried to save it from uh, a Word document as well as from my notes. Oh. And it, won't let, it won't let me paste it in the chat. <coughs> so okay. I don't know what's going on there. All right, but, fair uh, enough. You know, I'll try to, maybe we'll have Rand put it with the notes when we post it with the podcast. We might want to check out Royal Doors. That, that might yeah, maybe any, be anybody from. else, if you could check around and find it, it's very, it's a very clear passage. Sure. You feel free to post it in the chat section. Okay. You know, Teresa of Avila spoke of a kind of irreparable harm that was done to her over the course of time that she was going through so many different experiences in the spiritual life and one spiritual director after another really gave poor guidance and it was deeply frustrating to her but also wounding and uh and often she was characterized in some you know pretty bad ways too until she did find someone who was able you know not only to understand something of her experience but offer her solid counsel through it 
So hypothesis 19 on the necessity of obedience and what benefits arise from it and how a man accomplishes it. Again, this is one of those things that I think in terms of modern sensibilities or the modern mind uh, is often for us, difficult for us to wrap our minds around easily. The idea of being obedient to, a, to another, that we often stress personal freedoms, personal rights uh, in, in such a way that it becomes hard for us even to think uh, with a clear mind about what is being said in the spiritual tradition. And there can be a kind of suspicion that we have uh, about obedience. And the, the root of the word obedience is ab adere, you know, the, the, the coming from the, the word to, to hear. So it's to be able to hear the word, the counsel, the guidance uh, of another and to hear the word of another. And so often we, that relationship is about receiving a word from a spiritual father and be able, being able to hear it with a kind of docility uh, that is formative. Uh, it's not being a doormat, you know, it's, uh, and it's not meekness in the false sense of the word, but this ability to, uh, to be taught, uh, docile uh, is probably the best word. Uh, and docile means teachable. And so a person has to, in this spirit of obedience, be teachable to be able to receive the counsel of another. And that's why often, uh, you know, men and women aren't received into religious communities at a later age, not uh, uh, because there's anything wrong with them, but uh, most often because they're formed in their ways so deeply once you reach, reach a certain age that it's hard to enter into a common life and to be put under the obedience of another, perhaps one to be close to your own age. You know, when you've been formed with this perception of the world, sometimes uh, older individuals have a harder time fitting into the common life uh, after a certain age. And so you'll often find uh, communities within their role having like the age 35 or 40 with special exceptions being made, but for someone who seems to have a particular aptitude for the, the spiritual life or seems to be a good fit. But typically uh, it's the younger individuals who have enough maturity to enter into the life, but are so formable at that point. Eric, we haven't even gotten to the text yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Uh, wow. Well, it's 6.56, not gotten to the text yet. Maybe I'll save my question for later. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. We, we already read a little bit. but um, Well, I was just wondering, so there's kind of like a, um, I think what Rachel was saying with discernment about uh, finding a spiritual director probably mm -hmm. plays into this, but um, Sometimes, sometimes there's, uh, there are conditions where it might be very hard for people like um, <laughs> post, you know, just in our recent times, as you've said many times, I think um, there are very few people who are elders, you know, mm -hmm. that are accessible. So certainly with elders, it's very accessible to have this kind of uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is because there are so few elders, if you, you know, so you, there are probably people out there who have found people who don't necessarily know everything that's applicable to a given situation. And 
should people who have that situation, let's say, I, I don't know, I mean, I, I won't give particular situations, but I'm just thinking what you're saying about not having elders, um, you know, with the ascetical life and things like that and lost traditions uh, with the ascetical life and things like that. And I've, I've heard all sorts of terrible advice from, from, you know, random people, um, you know, um, even priests just on uh, relevant radio or things like that. And, and I just, I hear that and I just think this is terrible advice. And if I had received this advice, what would be the, I mean, should one be docile to extremely, extremely uh, non-elder <laughs> right. advice? No. I think we aren't foolhardy. And we are yeah. discerning. And that was sort of the essence of the last paragraph in the previous hypothesis that uh, that uh, someone can do irreparable harm. And so it may be better to stay close to the sacraments, go to confession regularly, read the fathers, read the scriptures, and develop one's spiritual life as deeply as one can. And uh, in, in fact, to have a spiritual director, one sort of needs to have a spiritual life to begin with. And so there is sort of a, a foundation that a, a, per, a basic foundation that a person would want to establish simply by reading the catechism even and, and sort of picking up the essence of what Catholic life is and being able to embrace the sacramental life to become deeply rooted in the things that are formative, most formative for us and our sources of grace. And to do that consistency with consistency, constancy, and one can make great gains in doing that with, with fidelity. Uh, and so I think you're right, you know, a person could do greater harm to themselves by indiscriminately listening to everything that is being said. And that there's much in, you know, in the theological and spiritual forums, spiritual life forums that adds to the noise of the world and is really going to be more confusing. And, you know, Cardinal Seurat, who I've mentioned here a number of times, you know, his great counsel in the midst of all that we are experiencing is the power of silence, this need to still ourselves and our minds and our hearts when there is so much chaos within the world, simply to be able to listen to God who speaks within the depths of our hearts. And to me, I think that's probably the wisest counsel and the best place for a person to begin to tune out the things of the world and even the things within the life of the church that create a kind of agitation and to become intensely focused upon Christ, what he has taught us, the example of his life, the cross, uh, the gift of the, the Eucharist, the gift of himself in the Eucharist, that these become the things that are our guides and directors. And then, you know, I think we pray that God, you know, leads us to those that we need. And I think God is faithful to that over the course of time. You know, sometimes it, it does take a while and we have to be patient. And I think part of that, that patience is maybe even preparing ourselves to be able to receive what the, the person God gives us is going to offer. You know, sometimes there has to be enough of a desire within the person's heart to take hold of what is said to them. So when we go on to hypothesis 19, from the life of Theodosius, he's uh, the sixth century, early sixth century, 
in early fifth century into the sixth century, I'm sorry. So 423 to 529, uh, as he approached the age of manhood was possessed by a passion for the philosopher's life and abandoning his homeland went to Jerusalem. After he had venerated the holy shrines with sanctity of soul, the thought of how to undertake the practical philosophical life and which of the two roads he should follow, that of total isolation and strict seclusion or the cenobitic life with others, both of which aspire to the same ends, began wholly and singularly to preoccupy him. But for the present, at least, he chose not to attempt living the hesychastic life alone since he did not judge it safe and that he felt himself totally inexperienced to wrestle with the evil spirits. So the hesychastic life or hesychastic life is this life of deep solitude would be one of the marks of it, uh, of seeking union of God deep within the heart through the purification of the passions and through unceasing prayer, in particular the Jesus prayer, that this would be the, the life of, uh, of a hesychast and is typically associated with the life of a hermit one or an anchorite, one who would live in profound seclusion. And this Theodosius you know, has enough wisdom to see that he lacks the ability uh, to enter into that kind of life, that it would be fraught with dangers for him, having no experience of spiritual warfare or battle, to enter into seclusion. Uh, to enter into solitude, uh, he would be putting himself in harm's way. And so very quickly, he discerns that the appropriate path for him is to learn about the spiritual life by placing himself in obedience to an abbot or living within a community where he could be formed and shaped over the course of time and taught the, the very nature of, of that battle. And uh, Climacus, who we are reading in the other group, makes this very clear too, that it's really within the common life that one learns as it were the ABCs of the spiritual battle. And I think that's true within the family life too. This is where children are to learn something uh, of that spiritual battle. It's from living within the family that they are formed and shaped in, in the faith and first come to understand that this is part of life and this is uh, we are to be seeking above all other things to please God and to live in accord with the gospel. And uh, similarly, you know, one who is inexperienced, but who's feels drawn uh, towards this end that we all share, which is the desire for union with God. One has to discern, okay, where am I going to be formed? Where do I need to learn the ABCs as it were of the spiritual battle? And that's found within the common life. For, he said, if among the soldiers of the world, there is no one so very rash and stupid that being totally inexperienced at war and never having used weapons of war, he would dare to be hurled immediately from his camp into the midst of the enemy. How would it be possible for me, who have not trained my hands for battle and my fingers for war, making reference here to Psalm 143, who have not yet been girded with strength from on high to enter into such an engagement, exceedingly dangerous and full of mortal traps against the commanders and the powers of the prince of this world, against the spirits of evil. So again, with a great clarity, he could see what lies before him, that it's not only with his own weaknesses, his own passions that he's going to be struggling with, 
but really with the, the, the uh, prince of, the e of evil himself the, and the evil powers of this world, powers and principalities. And so who is he then to thrust himself into the greater warfare? You know, I think in our great fantasies, when we want to get away from the world, we dream of, of living in a cabin in the woods, at least I do, pretty much on a daily basis. But uh, often that's rooted more in the desire to escape reality. And I think what we learn from the fathers here is that to enter into this solitude is actually in to enter into greater warfare with the evil one. And so one has to have long experience uh, before uh, taking that path and often uh, having received permission to do so by the abbot. And if you remember, uh, some of you from past groups, we talked about uh, Saint, uh, uh, oh my goodness, uh, Charbel from Lebanon uh, had lived in the common life and the hermit of the community had passed away. And the abbot uh, allows uh, Charbel to take up this life of a hermit. And he, as he's doing so, and he's informing the community, he says, don't think this is a reward for Charbel, you know, for good behavior, for being a really obedient you know, a young man, that he's actually going into the greater warfare on behalf of others, not simply for himself, uh, but for the community as a whole, but also for the church. And, uh, and it's because he's excelled in that warfare within the common life, and he's been, he sh had shown himself to be teachable in so many ways uh, that he was fit then to be able to take this path. But that, this was only after many years of living the common life. Anthony. We talked about impediments to spiritual growth or spiritual direction. Maybe one impediment is academia as a kind of anti-monastery. This theme of God establishing things and then there are antitheses has been playing in my head. Like Geneva, Switzerland has become the anti-Rome and that network of Calvinist churches, its competitive nature with Rome has become like an anti-church. And the spirit of academia in which we can, we have some discipline, but we don't, um, we're not expected to remain under obedience. We're expected to explore and make our marks on the world and show off what we know is like an anti-monasticism. And we've been formed in this. So this idea of, of, well, I have to be formed before I go out on my own because there are wolves out there. Academia makes fun of all the wolves and makes fun of the demons that will wreak a havoc of your soul. And I guess if you're not careful, you're going to want to go in and, and make somebody out of yourself and you'll be food for the devils. Yeah. You know, I think that has been sort of true, not only in academia, but I think in many, so many different areas of life, you know, of sort of setting oneself apart from others as having special skills, you know, having a certain kind of swag, bravado, you know, that you show and showing this kind of pride and in, in oneself is seen as something almost a kind of virtue a modern virtue where a person has this level of confidence about himself or herself and their abilities. And uh, we don't see this within this spiritual literature at all. And 
and so whether it's in academia or other areas of life, there isn't this sense of uh, looking to the elders and learning from experience or being teachable. You know, it's always being calling things into question uh, rather than to be able to receive what is handed down uh, from us. And I think it's what even makes it hard, I think, for people in general to, to look to the churches, to the tradition as being something that's valuable, that we are sort of recreating in our, our mind what we think the church should be or what we think liturgy should be, or uh, ra rather than uh, simply looking to Christ and the gospel and what those who have walked the path before us have taught us. And so making ourselves students you know, uh, of, the, of the fathers uh, is not something that's put before us. And I think even within seminary, I was sort of surprised that, uh, not that I would expect, wouldn't expect that we would read contemporary works on theology. You know, I would expect that would be uh, a part of things, but this immersion in the fathers never really took place other than in a, in a very limited fashion in patristics. But this was more of an overview uh, of the fathers and what they taught or what they focused upon. And usually it was on their theological writings. And so, and when it came time to, for courses in uh, spirituality, uh, it might focus on, they might have like electives that would focus on a particular individual, Therese of Lisieux or someone along those lines, but there wasn't this consistent formation that took place uh, where one is immersed in the spiritual tradition and learns it over the course of time. And, you know, I'm sympathetic, you know, maybe they feel that they lack time to do that. Oh, actually, I'm not sympathetic. I think it's a lot of time and money uh, that isn't spent very well. Uh, but I think they feel rushed to, to form guys in a certain kind of way. And the way that they talk about philosophy and even the study of philosophy and preparing a person to study theology is much different in the way that they're using the word uh, uh, philosopher here. It says he had a passion for the philosopher's life, abandoning home and went to Jerusalem. And the first thing he does is he visited all, visits all the holy shrines for the sanctity of his soul. So he, he's a lover of wisdom. And yet that word that is taking him is not, you know, to immerse himself sort of in the theoretical and the abstract, but in what is real, the experience, not just in the notion, notional but what is ever so real. And ultimately this leads him where he needs to be, which is uh, to enter into a community, not simply to enter into the isolation of, of a hermit, that he has to learn the warfare. And he's saying, you know, if everything in the world tells me this is what I would need to enter into warfare, that if it's absurd, and I'm sure this has happened throughout history, to just throw somebody, give them a gun and throw them into battle, you know, they're going to be the first ones that get knocked off because they're, they're not going to know what to do in order to protect them themselves. And uh, if they're given a little time, then they can survive for a longer period of time. But if you just thrust them into battle right away, they're typically going to be, you know, fodder for the enemy. And, uh, and so it's even more so within the spiritual life that the subtlety, the relentlessness of the evil one is really uh, going to put a person in jeopardy unless there is a wise spiritual guide there. He says, it behooves me 
therefore, first to become a student of the Holy Fathers, who have been well trained before me in these struggles, and only after I have been trained well by these fathers in war against spiritual enemies, shall I attempt to reap the fruits of hesychasm. After having thought of all these things with great wisdom, because among other attributes, he also had profound wisdom, St. Theodosius began immediately to seek those with great efforts, who with great efforts had occupied themselves in the study of the good, knowing well that the surest learning or teaching is that which is acquired through experience. So the, the wisdom that he has drives him to the fathers and to, to seek out their, their counsel. We see this in John Cassian, if any of you are familiar with him, he and Germanus, a friend of his, were, were monks already in Palestine and asked permission from their abbot to go to Egypt uh, in order to be able to learn uh, from the Egyptian monks in, in the Wadi, Wadi Natrun area. And uh, they even debate at one point about ever returning uh, because they saw, you know, the beauty of the life there, and they extend their stay for quite a bit longer than was originally agreed. And there's this sort of interesting little discussion that they have with one of the monks there. Would we be acting in disobedience if we stayed longer, or should we go back now and not really be able to take back the fullness of the formation that we need in order to share it with our own, within our own monasteries? Uh, thank, you know, thankfully, they stayed. And the, the fruit of that, you know, has been incalculable. You know, Cassian has been the reading of Western monks from really the beginning. And as I mentioned before, required reading uh, in Benedict's role uh, for the monks. And so, you know, even there, there's already this going back to the fathers right from the beginning, those who entered in to the spiritual battle. That one doesn't sort of simply discern it for oneself. For, for oneself, he thus presented and entrusted himself to the blessed elder Longinus, who was greatly distinguished among the fathers with whom he lived. Uh, he shared Longinus's table and lived with him, uh, being greatly pleased by his manners and his behavior. Indeed, to such an extent did he spiritually unite with the saint that we recall the saying of the divine David, my soul hath cleaved unto thee. For as the ancients rightly say, one is likened unto him with whom he associates and in whom he takes pleasure. And so like is drawn to like, you know, already uh, Theodosius has a kind of wisdom uh, about him and understands where he needs to have his focus set. And so he's drawn to this holy elder and cleaves to him, uh, understanding that it's through him that he, he finds the, the path to life here, how he's going to engage in the spiritual battle. And so, you know, when we find, I think for us, the, the wisdom of the fathers and we begin to see it, uh, uh, I don't know if some of you received the mailing. Did any of you receive the mailing this week that we sent out? Uh, St. John Cassian's Eight Vices. That, that was some, one of the first readings I read from the fathers. And as a young man, you know, I was still in college. 
when I read it. And it was the first time I'd ever come across anything like it. And I'd never read anything like that before. And I knew nothing about what Cassian was talking about in terms of the specific uh, vices, how they manifest themselves and the, how they are to be remedied. What the wisdom of the spiritual tradition teaches us. I knew absolutely nothing about it. So when I first read it, 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 set, it was like it set something on fire. It was at that moment, not that I could understand it, but there was the sense that I had, this is it. You know, th this is what, what I need to hear. Because, you know, most of you know what it's like to be a typical college student. I imagine a good number of you here uh, would, would, would know that experience. And I was the typical college student. And, uh, you know, just tossed about on the waves of, of the life of a secular university. And uh, even, you know, after coming in contact with the church, it's just I was unmoored at that point. You know, first gradually, you know, through, uh, you know, being formed in the, the faith, being prepared to become Catholic and then being rooted in the sacramental life. Uh, but you know, only providentially, I think, by this exposure to the fathers of gaining some clarity about what Theodosius was talking about, you know, about being trained to engage in this spiritual warfare, of having any sense of how that might be done. And I understand what the authors were saying in the previous hypothesis about the need for someone to guide and what is being said here, because even in reading the fathers, it can be very difficult uh, to discern on one's own what is going on within the heart or, you know, what the specific temptations are, sort of to be able to separate them out, you know, from one's own emotions and desires and, you know, percep perceptions of things to what really God would desire for the soul. And, it really was only through the course of spiritual direction over time and through continuous reading of the fathers that a greater, greater clarity began to emerge. But uh, I think, you know, this immersion in the life of the fathers is essential for the spiritual life. If we believe everything that we've been talking about, that Christianity is an ascetic, essentially an ascetical religion, and that we have to exercise our faith and that we have to engage in this spiritual battle, that if we lose hold of this spiritual tradition, then we are going to be in a world of hurt in the sense of we're just going to be cast astray and, and not have any, any sort, source of, uh, of being able to find our bearing, you know, to understand what's going on in our life or why we might be falling into the same sin over and over again, why something has a, a grip on us, even when we come to hate it and don't want it as a part of our life, how is it that we would approach it? You know, we're walking blind, I think, outside of the wisdom of the fathers. And so that's part of the reason that I sent out that little section from Cassian, uh, hoping to that you would share it with others, just because I think it is the clearest, like within 20 pages or so, he's able to articulate the nature of the, the there are eight vices that were identified by the Eastern Fathers rather than the seven capital sins. They have an extra one in there, as you'll see, uh, but it's the clearest explanation of them. And so I hope you find it personally helpful 
but feel free to share it with others as well. Okay. Any thoughts on Theodosius? So cleave to the fathers. So, you know, Philip Neri carried around with them Cassian. So I expect everybody to be carrying around with them Climacus or I won't make you carry all four volumes of the, of the Evergatinos. That would be pretty stiff penance, but the latter isn't too bad. Eric. I, I just wanted to comment on, um, well, how very interesting it is that actually um, Theodosius talks about the good and being a philosopher because, well, um, he's, he's very much in that way um, in continuity with the Greek philosophical tradition. And I do know that it, it's not necessarily the case that they were all educated in this, um, but it was a background. And it was a background that was, you know, for some of the great um, fathers like, um, you know, St. Basil and uh, things like that. So actually uh, for that reason, it's, it's very interesting. You know, we think in the contemporary world reading someone like Plato or Plotinus or something like that, or, you know, that kind of philosophy that it's somehow something that's just about, you know, certain arguments about what is, what is good and what's not good or, you know, what exists or what doesn't. And it's all very abstract and, and not very kind of like um, rooted in anything related to God, for instance. But no one really believed that kind of thing, at least in, in the East. Mm -hmm. um, and if so, only maybe recently. Um, I mean, there are exceptions, of course. But yeah, I mean, it, it's just that philosophy reference, it's really the same philosophy, but it's just understood in a different way than we're used to. Yeah, I think I mentioned one of the past groups that even our seminarians have said that they understand, you know, having, you know, the, the study of theology, uh, philosophy as being part of the preparation for, for seminary, but they're studying the wrong philosophers. They're having them spend all this time struggling with some of the modern philosophers where they would be better off having studying Aristotle or, you know, someone along those lines uh, than laboring for a number of years with something, again, that is hard to connect, maybe harder to connect with the spiritual tradition as a whole. Ashley Cashel. Um, yeah, I was just thinking about something uh, when you were talking about cleaving to um, the fathers. Uh, I listened to a talk a while back um, about like how the ancient Jews would follow their rabbis and they had this saying that was like, um, you should follow them as closely as you can in order to like get like be covered in the dust of your rabbi. So like, cause they were known for like following after their teachers. Mm -hmm. Um, and so like, so closely it was said that like the sandals from his feet would like kick up the dust onto them. So it was just reminding me of that. So like we cover ourselves in the dust of Cassian and like all these, <laughs> all these people. So yeah, excellent. Yeah. And, you know, we see images of that within the scriptures with Christ himself too, you know, that's exactly what he was doing and why crowds were following him along the road 
that that was a common thing to be able to to ask a rabbi for a word or you know when uh, someone asked Jesus you know rabbi what are the greatest command commandments I mean this wasn't an unusual thing that typically questions like this would be put to the rabbis of the time uh, and the, in order that they might be able to distill the law uh, for individuals with a kind of clarity. And so we see Christ doing this. We see him on the road teaching. Uh, you know, when they come across the blind beggar who's yelling, you know, one of the reasons that they all become angry with him because he's, he's disturbing them and preventing them from hearing what Jesus was teaching along the, the road because he's crying out so much. And so, yes, we see it within the scripture, you know, this you know, disciples uh, following their master, you know, in order to have that teaching, as it were, cling to them like the dust of the road, as, as you said. So very good. Great image. Okay. From the Drontcon, Abba Anthony said that obedience, along with self-restraint, has the power to subdue even wild beast. And I thought at first, well, okay, that doesn't tell us very much. And uh, what am I going to say about this? You know, are we suddenly, will we suddenly have, uh, you know, authority over, over the wild beast around us? But, you know, I think what, at its heart, what Anthony is saying here is that, you know, obedience and through obedience, one over, is able to overcome nature itself. And really the wild beasts that exist within, you know, our own passions. And that can be manifest. We hear all these stories from the fathers about their, uh, you know, friendship with bears and things like that, or having these relationships, even in the West, Francis and, and the wolf. And, you know, there's all these kinds of stories that those who live this obedient life and who have this kind of docility before God and innocence before God don't become, they're, no, they're not threatening to these wild beasts and sort of tame them simply by their, their goodness. And uh, even, even when present day, I think with some of these Russian monks, you know, we, they're often pictured with, you know, hanging around with bears and things such as that. And I always find that somewhat amusing, but I think that's part of it. You know, there's this kind of holy innocence there that arises out of their spirit of obedience. They're having struggled with that wild beast and tame that wild beast within allows them also to tame the, the wild beast within, within the world. Abba Poiman said that someone asked, once asked Abba Pisces, what should I do since my soul is sensitive and does not fear God? Abba Pisces answered him, go and cleave unto a man who fears God by your association with him, you also learn from him to fear God. And so, you know, again, here we are shown that we don't necessarily seek out and cleave to the guide or the elder that is that we are going to be most inclined to uh, seek out as our director, but rather one who's going to be able to teach us what we need. And so here's an individual who's, who's, there's a kind of insensitive insensitivity in his soul. He's no fear of God, no love of God. And so he's counseled to go and cleave to a man who has that, who has this fear of God. And by his mere association 
with him, he will be, begin to pick up that virtue. By spending time with him, he will, he will learn it by seeing it first, firsthand. Abba Isaiah said to, the, said to the novices who were disciples of the Holy Fathers that the first coat of paint does not fade in a way that purple, which is applied in layers, does. Just as tender branches easily yield and bend, so also do obedient novices. So I really struggled with this one. I was desperately searching the internet to find out something about purple and purple paint. Uh, and, uh, you know, I know there's something, there is something special about that in terms of various colors that are combined in order to produce purple. And, uh, but figuring out the image here as he uses it, the first coat of paint does not fade. Uh, I didn't quite pick this up, but I think if we try to interpret it in light of the second uh, section of it, just as tender branches easily yield and bend, so also do obedient novices, that uh, those who learn the spirit of, of obedience and docility early in their life don't fade, as it were, <coughs> excuse me, in their zeal for God and in their longing to please him and that they aren't easily uh, taken off of the path. They don't lose their color, as it were, over time, that their love for God does not fade. And they don't break easily either, that they have the kind of what is described here, how tender branches will yield and bend, but they won't break. That obedience sort of fosters this spirit within them, that they're able to receive the things of this world and the, the tests that come upon them without breaking because they've been, been formed and trained in, in obedience itself. That it, despite how much they are attacked by the evil one, that they, they've learned through their obedience about what to cling to, that they are, aren't undone or unswayed by this, the storm, or uh, they're unswayed by the storm that often blows around them. And, but it's obedience that helps them do this. Anthony. Maybe I understand because it took a bit, all right? Mm -hmm. I took uh, an icon painting class and I, as an amateur, do iconography. The first coat, if I understand this analogy, the protoplasmos mm -hmm. is kind of a bland generic coat, but it's essential because it supports all the other coats. It helps marry the successive and more beautiful colors to the gesso that's already on the board. Right. Uh, it's not glamorous at all, but it's part of the, it's like a mediator in a way, I guess, between the structure and the more beautiful uh, purple. Perhaps you can work that into your ponderings. Yes, that's very, that's very helpful actually. And there is something about that to see the beauty emerge in the icon over time and how it does come together uh, from this kind of radical simplicity or blandness, as you described, to something that's really beautiful that draws one in to something extraordinary. That's very helpful. Sawyer. Um, so I was just kind of curious about the distinction these are very much in relation to obedience to christian 
formed in Christian um, tradition, what what does that mean for? Uh, I mean, since we are primarily surrounded by non-Christian at this point in society, what what does that does that translate, or is this just meant to focus in that area? Translate in what way? Just so I have some clarity. As far as are these are these um, kind of tenets to apply to all forms of authority, or primarily authority that has been formed in the Christian tradition? Because there's, it feels like there is a um, kind of purifying, strengthening um, process that's going on through this obedience, and I'm just curious does that also apply when the, when the authority is not Christian? Well, I, I think most, most certainly. I think like asceticism itself, uh, we, we see that it's a human reality that in all these other areas of our life, we uh, exercise ourselves and train ourselves in, you know, we're, we're seeking to develop a particular aptitude. And so in every area of life, as we talked about, we see this kind of asceticism emerge, but in other world religions or in the military and sports, you see this kind of obedience and willingness to listen to coaches, uh, you know, or those who have this long experience as being essential. And uh, in fact, very strict at times, certainly within the, the military, uh, you know, there's almost a kind of breaking down that takes place of, of this willfulness that's really almost kind of violent, or at least at various times in history has been, in order that they might fight as one, uh, you know, be of one, one mind and uh, not be clinging to their own will and doing their own thing. And, uh, and not that we would want to emulate or imitate that I mean, I think that there's a distinctive uh, kind of obedience uh, within Christianity that is especially modeled for us by, by Christ himself. It's the crucified one who's the standard for us and that our obedience is focused upon doing the, the Father's will, doing God's will. And the spiritual director is only a value in so far as he helps us to do that, not to become a mini-me or to shape the person in his image, but it's really to help the person be you know, responsive to the guidance of the spirit within his own life. And, uh, but yes, you know, I think we see it in many forms of life. And I don't know why then it becomes so difficult for us to acknowledge the importance and the value of it in the Christian spiritual life. And other than because of some of the, the influences that certainly Anthony mentioned earlier and, you know, what we see in our own culture that really emphasizes, you know, this kind of freedom, independence, you know, to the, the point where it becomes very difficult for us to see the value of it anymore. And even in athletes, you know, you see those who struggle Sometimes these these athletes that are great, you know, they have super, they're super talented, and then they, they sort of they uh, implode at a certain point that they aren't able. They think they are above 
the counsel and the guidance of those who are their coaches or who might have more experience than them simply because of their talent. And yet, and then they end up destroying their careers because of it. And how often has, has that happened over the course of time? So somebody had put up something here, I think for, forced, I think the word in Greek connotes dying and not painting. So I'll, I'll do a little bit more research on that week, this week and see if I can find something more about that. I was going to ask Ren too, because she was a painter. I don't, is she still here? Yeah, if she knew anything about, uh, about this, but, uh, but I'll look it up this week and see if I can find a little extra information on it and bring it back to our group next week. Okay, so we're at 8.38, and uh, so we'll stop there for tonight and pick up next week, uh, again, with more thoughts on obedience. Okay. All right, thank you all. Moment we close, as always, with the Our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. And what God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thanks be to God. Thank you all.